Chapter Ten, Parts C and D of Aces Up. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Aces Up by Covington Clark, Chapter Ten, Parts C and D. Part C. The day following, Major Cowan called, and in his elation over the success of American arms at the recent Battle of Chateau Thierry, told McGee more in a short half-hour than Red had been able to worm from all others with whom he had talked. The Germans, Cowan told him, had been stopped at Chateau Thierry in an epic stand made by the 2nd and 3rd Divisions AEF, and a few days later the Marines had crowned themselves with a new glory when, in liaison with the French, they had stormed the edges of Belleau Wood, gained a foothold, and then tenaciously pushed slowly forward in the bloodiest and bitterest battle yet waged by the untried American forces. Counterattack after counterattack had been met and repulsed, with the net result that the Germans had been definitely stopped in the Marne salient. Their hope of breaking through to Paris was shattered, and though they were still pounding hard, their sacrifices were vain. It was, Cowan declared, the real turning point of the war, and even now men were joyously declaring that the war would be won by Christmas. As for the air forces, they had delivered beyond the fondest hopes of the high command. The casualties had been high, Cowan admitted, but not higher than might be expected, and not without giving even heavier losses to the enemy. The squadron losses could have been held down had the members been less keen about scoring a personal victory over von Herzmann. Every pursuit pilot, along with the entire front, was willing to take the most desperate chances in the hope of plucking the crest feathers of this German war eagle. I guess there's one member not particularly anxious to pluck any of the eagle's feathers, McGee put in at this point. No? Cowan's voice was quizzical. Who's that? Siddons, McGee replied tersely. A look of aggravation or of pained tolerance crossed Cowan's face. We won't discuss that, he said, deserting for the moment his air of good fellowship and returning to the quick testy manner of speaking which was so characteristic of him in matters of decision. I take it you have said nothing to Larkin or anyone else concerning your, uh, our suspicions? Nothing, sir. But I can't. Good. Let intelligence work it out, Lieutenant. One little rumor might upset all their plans. I can assure you, however, that G2 knows all that you know. They are waiting the right minute, and perhaps have some plan in mind. Silence and secrecy are their watchwords. Let them be yours. He arose and extended his hand. I must be moving along. I'm glad to see you doing so nicely. You'll be more than welcome when you get back to the squadron. Don't worry, there's plenty of war left yet. Part D Perhaps there was plenty of war left, but McGee soon discovered that a badly broken arm and a cracked, cut head can be painfully slow in healing. Days dragged slowly by, with Larkin's visits as the only bright spot in the enforced inactivity. Then, to McGee's further distress, the squadron was moved to another front. Larkin had been unable to tell him just where they were going but believed it was to the eastward, where it was rumored that Americans were to be given a purely American sector. This was unpleasant news to McGee. It meant that he would be left behind, and he could not drag from the hospital medicos 
any guess as to when he would be permitted to leave the hospital. Hospital life, with its endless waiting, sapped his enthusiasm. At night, in the wards, the men recovering from all manner of wounds would try to speed the lagging hours by telling stories, singing songs, and inventing the wildest of rumors. Occasionally, when the lights were out, some wag would begin an imitation of a machine gun, with its rat-tat-tat-tat, and another catching the spirit of the mimic warfare would make the whistling sound of a high-angle shell. In a few moments the ward would be a clamorous inferno of mimic battle sounds, machine guns popping, shells screaming toward explosion, cries of gas, and the simulated agonized wails of the wounded and dying. Hit the dirt! Here comes a G.I. can! Look out for that flying pig! Over the top, my buckles, and give him the bayonet! Thus did men, wrecks in the path of war, keep alive their spirit and courage by jesting over the grimmest tragedy that had ever entered their lives. And then they would take up rollicking marching songs, or sing dolefully, I want to go home, I want to go home. Invariably, when some chap began a narrative of the prowess of his own company or regiment, the others would begin singing tauntingly, The old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be, ain't what she used to be, ain't what she used to be. The old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be many long years ago. It wasn't really fun. It was only the pitifully weak effort to meet suffering, loneliness, homesickness, and fear with bravado. There is no one in all the world more lonely than a soldier in a hospital. Time becomes what it really is, endless and without hope of a change on the morrow. And the pay for it all was a gold wound chevron to wear on the sleeve, or a dangling glittering medal testifying to courage and sacrifice. End of chapter 10, parts C and D.